You are listening to the IMN podcast produced by the Boise Nampa Institute of Religion. We've asked members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to share how their lives have been blessed by living the gospel of Jesus Christ. To the Savior's request, come follow me, they have all responded, I am in. Megan Jones grew up in Boise, Idaho and attended Boise High School. She has a bachelor's degree in marketing from the University of Massachusetts. Megan and her husband, Tyler, have lived in Boston, Hawaii, San Francisco, Chicago, Virginia, Germany, Cleveland, and Idaho. She and her husband, Tyler, are the parents of four children. Megan is the owner of M Design. She incorporates all of her event construction and marketing experiences into one company. She creates unique spaces and events with exemplary touches. Her vision and passion for the statement that perfection is truly in the details has set a high mark for her M Design's commitment to excellence. Megan has earned her stripes working for the Humanitarian Bowl as an event planner and sponsorship fulfillment lead. Megan led the charge with all game production, event tailgating, sponsorship VIP meals, out-of-town VIP guests, and coordination with event centers for programs and meals for over 300 people. Megan was also the lead sports sales manager for the Boise Convention and Visitors Bureau. She has consulted and fostered local events such as BAM Jam and Idaho Youth Soccer's Far West Regionals. A fun fact about Megan is that she grew up in the halls of the Boise Institute. Her father is Morris Bastion, a past institute director. She began attending noon Friday luncheons as early as high school and watched this one-story building expand into the two-level institute we use today. This is Michelle Burke, and you are listening to the I Am In podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message from Megan Jones. I'm delighted to be with you today. Words aren't my gift, and I repeatedly discover the magnitude of my feelings are inadequately expressed in words. One of my hopes is in the life hereafter, I'm going to be a walking thesaurus so that I might sufficiently portray my heart's feelings and magnitude. Henry David Thoreau once stated, we are armed with a language enough to describe each leaf of the field, but not to describe human character. My liability today is that with any luck, you might carry something away from my experience and leave with another facet of a perspective. My name is Megan Jones. I'm a Boise native, having done a majority of my growing up years in Boise. I grew up running the Institute Hall, swearing that the wall of profits right outside this door moved as I ran by my, as I ran by, as my father was the Institute Director for my growing up years. His strictness and frugality never allowed for a light on if not needed. And I attribute my zero to 50 yard dash <laughs> or my fight or flight speediness to that dark, creepy hallway. Funny how those zero to 18 years are such a happy and absurdly formidable years. I'm a small business owner that owns her own interior design and event firm, where I design spaces, homes, and events to great precision. I'm a wife to Tyler, who continues to amaze me each day with his discipline and fortitude. The mother of four strong-willed little girls who, whose determination will lend itself to amazing places in adulthood. And I'm the youngest daughter of exemplary parents who had seven children in 18 years. Bless their hearts, right? 
I would say to you that I have four places that define my childhood. Uh, number one would be the church or the institute walls, these very institute walls. I grew up in the halls around us, and I have fond memories of catching a college institute class way before I became of age. And I think that was for the purposes of babysitting, really. Uh, number two would be Joanne's Fabric. <laughs> I attribute, attribute much of my love-hate relationship here as it, as it created a love for textiles and pairing. But the massive time suck of Joanne's Fabric defined a good amount of my childhood. Uh, next would be gyms, and I played a lot of sports growing up, and I learned great lessons on the court and off the court, um, digging in when it gets hard and valuing movement in my life. Um, the last place I would say that defined my childhood is the Boise Natatorium on Warm Springs Avenue. I spent a good majority of my childhood summers, then it gave me my first job as a swim coach, a lifeguard, and uh, for extra hours, pool maintenance gal. I graduated from Boise High and not knowing exactly what I wanted to do or having any life that looked like one that I wanted to model. It just didn't it just needed to not include pool maintenance. I treaded and navigated through many open doors, all of which didn't have a very specific direction. I reached out to mentors and in particular found one from the Boise some from the previous Boise Cascade and she was in the marketing department. She was a great resource for a different perspective from a different walk of life. I knew I needed to hit checkpoints. I knew I had motivation and a good head on my shoulders, and I trusted that it would lead me to good places. However, looking back, I am sure I gave a real tidy answer to anyone who asked what I was going to do with my life. Through some folly and a great many doors aligning, I found myself in Massachusetts where I received my bachelor's degree from the University of Massachusetts. I majored in marketing and had minors in women's studies and design. During college, I worked for The Gap and made connections with a few people at the corporate level. At the end of college, I interned with a gal out in, that lived in New York City who worked for Ralph Lauren. Sold on visual merchandising and creating, I assumed this relationship would open my next door. It did, but not in a way I could have imagined. My mentor was being recruited by Gap in San Francisco. She spoke of her interest in hiring me, that I would be a good fit in San Francisco, but I would need to give her six months before she could move, got settled, and could offer me a position. Um, at 20, six months to kill seems like an eternity. And so I started seeking out other opportunities. And I found a door open, door two open in Oahu at the Polynesian Cultural Center at their branding and marketing department. I jumped on as an intern and fully immersed myself in the North Shore vibes. This definitely was a culture shock. Next up was San Francisco. And after moving myself to the city, the unexpected door didn't pound on it exactly as I thought. A corporate hiring freeze put my plans in flux. However, door was opening back in Boise in the sports marketing world. Given my background in collegiate sports and my village connections in Boise, an opportunity arose what is now, with what is now the famous Idaho Potato Bowl selling sponsorship, managing events, and working with college football conferences. Knowing I wanted to complete business school for graduate, for graduate work in a few years, I told myself that this adventure that laid ahead 
until the next one would open up would be a great experience. I'd take my GMAT, I'd get my first little solo apartment, I'd sign up for an institute class and enjoy the working life. Little did I know this stop, which I thought would be in San Francisco, but was by the way of Boise, included matrimony. I met my husband through the special teams coach of Boise State. Kent Riddle, who I believe is still on staff, told me he had a Mormon on his team and we should get together (laughs) as we were the only two Mormons he knew. I rolled my eyes as if practicing Mormonism was the only source of compatibility. But a year later, Ty and I solidified that notion of compatibility for, for Coach Riddle by marrying. I wonder if he still thinks that's today. Plans changed for both of us and we pivoted to take the journey to the next set of open doors. Last week in our Come Follow Me lessons, we read through Exodus 14. Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt and was traveling towards their promised land, a land where their forefathers had lived over 400 years earlier. But instead of 70 of them, there were over 1 million people. Their journeying would have been slow. Imagine a group this size, including children, sick and elderly. In addition, they had their herds and their belongings. There were different routes they could take to get out of Egypt and into the promised land, but the Lord told them which route to take, which means he was highly involved in the details. The turn mentioned in verse 2 actually kept them within the bounds of Egypt and put them in the perfect position for a great miracle, one that would greatly test the faith of the Israelites. So the Israelites took the exact route the Lord told them to take, and that's because Moses was leading them. He always obeyed with exactness. Meanwhile, the Pharaoh had a change of heart. He found out that his former slaves were going to be cornered in the wilderness. So Pharaoh gathered his powerful small small army and went after them and planned to overtake them while the Israelites were in the vulnerable position with the Red Sea in front of them and nowhere to go. When the Israelites looked and saw them coming, fear ran through them, and they accused Moses of taking them to die into the wilderness. And they accused Moses of not listening to them. Is this not the word that we did tell thee in Egypt, that it would have been better for them to stay in Egypt? This is the first time it is mentioned in the scriptures, and it suggests that there may have been varying opinions of leaving, or perhaps the fear triggered their need to blame someone else for a situation they're in. Often we doubt initial confirmation when things get hard, but the answer, of course, is no, it would not have been better. Though the journey may have not been easy, staying enslaved in Egypt would not be better. Trusting in the Lord and allowing him to lead them to their future, as as he promised, would always be better. This is a moment when their faith is being tested. Moses knew to trust the Lord. He had witnessed this in the wilderness. He had learned of it in the glorious visions recorded in Moses 1. And he had witnessed it with each of the nine plagues previous to this story. So with confidence... Moses can promise, fear not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord shall fight for you. Even though the Israelites looked and saw a vast, uncrossable sea, the Lord did not. He had a solution that was beyond their comprehension. To Moses, he said, lift up thy rod and stretch out thine hand over the sea and divide it. We can see these verses in these verses that the Lord had a way of walking and protecting Israel, even if they could not see it. Fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. 
the Lord shall fight for you. This is such a powerful verse. Admittedly, the Old Testament is not my jam. Maybe all the translation and standards don't always add up, but overarching themes of lessons, human lessons and humility, trust, freedom, love, faith, it seems to visit every human of every race, every tongue, every society, and in every age of time. Somehow, built into the nitrogen our, the nitrogen of our DNA, the carbon in our teeth, the iron in our blood, the same chemicals of the universe made by our Heavenly Father are literally the makings of humility that bring us crying back to our Heavenly Parents, our Creators. They ask us to stand still, that we will be sought for, we will be fought for. From the very dust we were created from, the very dust we will return. And maybe that's why, even if our existence is but a blib in the universe, the message is clear to us as individuals. Fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord shall fight for you. After my husband graduated from BSU, I continued to work and he bounced around in the NFL where we home based in Boise or Eagle area, but also lived in Cleveland in Chicago, Virginia, Germany, and Seattle. In our second year of marriage, there was a snag, which at the time seemed so catastrophic in my employment. In my small office, my boss brought an intern that he decided to have an affair with. With verbal threats of my personal ruin, he pressured that if I didn't keep my mouth shut, he would fire and slander me. After fielding calls of questions from his family, our board, and sponsorship partners about his not-so-discreet affair, I met with the board and told them of the hostile work environment, the truth that had been going on, the threats, the inappropriate behavior, all in our small office of three. The slander began, the bullying, the intimidation. In fact, I lost my air for a little bit. The slander attacked my character, my honesty, my identity. Did I know who I was without accolades or attaboys? I never really had this level of a grapple for telling the truth or standing up for what was right. In my personal life, I was also grappling with saying goodbye to my husband for four months while he played in the NFL Europe season in Germany. None of these things I have mentioned were insurmountable. They were, in fact, everything was going to be okay. But I'd love to say that I navigated swimmingly, but I was young and my ego was bruised and the right was supposed to prevail like it does in a Disney movie. Though this was not a tidy bow moment, the short of this long story, had this battle not ensued, I would have missed living in Germany with my husband. While the office realigned, I was guaranteed pay until all the parties came to an agreement. This allowed us to experience Europe together. But while in Germany, this hard moment afforded me time to heal and um, to play with the idea of starting my own business. It also created a life experience that I would never trade. One of the most touching experiences in Germany was my visit to one of the largest concentration camps and newest memorials called Nuengami. It was a sobering and humbling experience. The camp was established in 1936 around empty brickworks in Hamburg, the city where we lived. The bricks produced there were mostly for Hitler's development of the larger German cities and rebuilding the city of Hamburg. Scarily, most of the walkways and buildings in, the, in Hamburg were all brick, 
and thus made by Nuangami's concentra- concentration camp victims, even of their own bones. Nuangami was a deadly hell for the inmates. It was truly a labor camp, and the inmates had to perform hard labor under constant beating of the guards. Starvation, physical abuse, and a total lack of hygiene and medical care killed thousands of inmates. During the war, thousands of people were deported as concentration camp prisoners to Nuangami from all over Europe by the Nazis. In most cases, they were incarcerated for having resisted German occupation, having refused to perform forced labor, or simply as victims of racial persecution. Around 500,000 inmates worked at, a, at the camp, and 56,000 victims were killed at Nuangami. Thousands of inmates were hanged, shot, gassed, killed by lethal injection, or transferred to the death camp of Auschwitz. Babies and small children were thrown outside moving trains during transport, used for medical experimentation, or sent directly to the slaughter to the fiery furnaces in the crematorium. There were so many moments and points where I stopped as I could handle no more, and I sobbed. It was such a human malfunction in history. What an awful way for humans to treat one another. What an awful death. It truly was too much to bear. I expected Nuangami to be a dark and dreary place where only weeds and rodents lived, but nature had prevailed with greenery and vegetation all over. It was then that I walked over to one of the memorials inside the camp and through teary eyes I read in every language, least we forget. Next to this, we saw a skeletal human statue laying on the ground, obviously battered, frail, exhausted, reaching for its last human breath. Carved in stone next to the statue, it states, your suffering, your struggle, and your death shall not have been in vain. Astoundingly, it was the first time I woke up to the strength of a God that we personally know and have a relationship with. Was I living my life in vain? I woke up to the strength of knowing yourself and where your value lies. 30 miles out on the outside of a major city, we saw a dissimilar side of Germany we had otherwise overlooked. We saw well-manicured yards, open fields, jovial neighbor, neighbors, plain children, farms, and healthy animals and vegetation. It was a side of Germany that the people themselves had rebuilt. It was a lifestyle that was completely dependent on the strength they received from a creator they knew. When I think of this haunting concentration camp experience, I think how our Heavenly Father seems to orchestrate the green again in our life, just as he did in the master plan of salvation by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to make room for the grace and the green, even after the unthinkable. The green, then, becomes the heart change because we have known the dark. I think of the trials and the tribulations and the faith-promoting experiences that I have survived to gain a testimony of who Jesus Christ is to me. It is by coming unto Christ that we truly understand the path our lives should take and who we really are. This metamorphosis from believing in Christ, the plan, and to rendering ourselves unto him is the purpose of our humanity. A great deal of my personal journey on earth has been the great ponderance of the plan. On a casual conversation with your instructor, Michelle Burke, 
We traded stories on how each of a, each phase of parenting gets harder in different ways. Ways you weren't prepared for. Ways you never knew how hard until you hit your personal bandwidth limit. And ways that break your heart because personal agency is pinnacle to the plan. Michelle stated, when words fail, she always goes back to the plan. What is the plan trying to teach us? I've pondered a great deal on personal agency, coupled with personal experience. Personally, knowing my role in the plan and personally trusting the God-given instincts that have been bestowed upon me. I can tell you firsthand, I haven't fit seamlessly into the Mormon machine of culture, which is not the gospel of Jesus Christ, though it is the gospel to some. I can remember back into my primary days where I was asked, Megan, how do you feel the Spirit? And when I responded, I was told I was wrong and that it couldn't be the way that he spoke to us. I'm sure she was teaching a lesson and wanted a specific answer that I was not giving. But it mapped inside me. Remember my mention of those absurdly formidable years? Here they are. You see, the Spirit speaks to my spirit, not by quiet and calm. It gives me heart-racing adrenaline to act. And if I hadn't felt it more times than I can even count, that well-intentioned primary teacher might have talked me out of it. But with personal agency and knowing my creation comes from the divine, I have the right and privilege to confidently make my decisions interpret and interpret my impressions by the divinity that was which I was created with and the agency that I was so luckily granted. No principle in time or eternity is so cherished as the right of agency, the right to consider alternatives and make choices, choices without compulsion. A war was waged in heaven over our agency, a war that was transferred to earth. Understanding our agency is imperative for our spiritual survival and fulfillment in Christ. Agency is the eternal right of the independent choice. It's our gift and our guide map from our heavenly parents. As we learn in Alma and Doctrine and Covenants, we enjoyed agency in our pre-mortal life. Personal agency allows us to choose our own course in life. We are accountable for this agency, however, which seems to escape some. We have to own our thoughts, our actions, and our words. By the time we landed back in the States from Germany, I had done a great deal of healing and written a business plan for an interior design shop called Newbury Street. I was energized, youthful, and flawed again with idyllic dreams of what it would mean. It would be a home decor shop that offered tchotchkes, filler, and home design services. After a secured partnership, endless work around the clock, overseas buying trips, finding trade partners, branding, and hiring, a dream was realized. And three years later, it was crushed. Though successful for a time, it was also at the the tipping point of one of the greatest economic recessions with the collapse of the housing and market, market. It much was on the line. I was a new mom with a daughter that would hear this life tale at some point. Ego bruised again, tears shed, eyes skyward, questioning if I was just a slow learner or what door would open next. And it did, like it often does. I was offered a sports marketing position literally out of the blue, this time selling and bidding on behalf of the city of Boise and the Boise Convention and Visitors Bureau 
to large-scale sporting events like Ironman, the NC2A basketball tournament, bike races, etc. And on the side, I took my creative talents to Etsy. I sold sign and digital invites. I worked around the clock, which was a time and season of life. I jumped on every interior design job I could could find, fighting to keep the door open on what I might thought was forever. (laughs) The crack of the door stayed open. Eventually, another exit door happened naturally for me to quit my sports marketing job. I mommed pretty hard and brought little three, three more souls into the fold, all the while inching along in my career. I've learned there is a time and a season for each door in your life. And through personal revelation and divine governess, which is inside each of us, we can know when it's the right door to walk through. Now I've made a tidy bow to a story that spans 20 plus years. There is loss, betrayal, joy, elation, hard spots, waiting spots, patient spots, devastation, and amazement. And if you knew what lay ahead of you, no one would do it. But it's also why we are taught line upon line, precept upon precept. It's why we train in increments of weight. It's why you have to crawl before you run because you're made for this. Your divinity is made for this. I'm in the throes of fulfilling and learning some of my greatest roles. Divine self, partner, mother, mentor, creator, small business owner. And I can't say that I get it right every day, but I do have a strong testimony of our role in our own story. Really, our time's but a blink, truly when compared to scientific timetables and creation. And if we're honest, most likely nobody but us and our God care about your story more than you. So you can own your own divinity, your own agency, your feels and sit with them. Or you can let somebody else tell you what you feel, how you should act, and what your role is, never knowing the the plan the creator had just designed for you. The God we doubt sometimes designed a thinking cap with 100 billion nerve cells, each as many as 10,000 connections each to other nerve cells, placed it in a skull and called it a brain. We walk around with that miracle never again to be duplicated even remotely each day. His power is mind-numbingly mighty with scientific forces beyond our comprehension. Yet he reaches out to us individually in our quiet moments with the tenderness of a parent. Without this connection, we lose purpose. We lose sight of our identity. We lose understanding of who we are and what we can become. As unique as you are, as singular as he made you, so did he also masterpiece your trials. They are personal and heart-wrenching and joyous and prophetically remote. Today is Good Friday. Good Friday is about death even necessary death. And that, and that makes it more sense to me more than any time in my life. It speaks of a dark day and broken hearts, unmet expectations, mob mentality turned brutal, the punitive result on being on the wrong side of popular religion. Of course, it was all planned, all intentional. Jesus Christ was out to rescue us. We have the privilege and the luxury that of that knowledge because we know about Sunday. We are living the post-Sunday story, which is grace by resurrection.
These last few years, I've watched Satan's machine. I saw with clear eyes the systems and the sides, alliances, the virtue signaling, the divide, the conspiracy, the country division, and coded language and calling out that you and your choices, your logic, your personal agency was no longer wanted. This was a lonely day for Jesus Christ. It was excruciating physically and emotionally and spiritually. His people left him and they turned on him. The sky went dark and life was extinguished. This was a day of tears and shock and loss and fear. It was a day of the cross, not the empty tomb. I stand in front of you on Good Friday and somehow I am comforted because Sunday did come and he did rise for our sake. My prayer is that you will come to know that the Sunday rise with the scars of the nails in his sides and his feet and his hands was for you, for your unique path, for your unique agency, and for your joy. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.